On this episode of The Art Dealer Show, you will hear gallery owner Mimi Sperber say... It's not a collection. Bear in mind it's an addiction. It's like anything else. Go into someone's house and they have tchotchkes or whatever. Nobody needs a room full of owls. They have it because they're sating themselves. Same thing with art. And welcome to The Art Dealer Show, a podcast about the people who sell art and for the people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern, and today on the show we have guest Mimi Sperber, owner of Off the Wall Gallery in Houston, Texas. We'll talk about her view on what a good client relationship is, collectors who buy to save themselves, her words, not mine, surviving storms, both economic and meteorologic. And why I should have bought an Andy Warhol print instead of that used Toyota Corolla when I was in high school. That and a lot more. But for now, let's drop into the old art dealer bar. I've got something on my mind I want to share with you. Got a glass in your hand of what the doctor ordered? Uh, I certainly do. Um, This is going to be a little bit of a ride, and uh, perhaps it'd be best if you just got comfortable and sit back and relaxed a little bit as I I walk through it, because I don't quite know where it's going. I'm I'm still working out my thoughts on this myself, but I, I think you're probably just the people I should be talking to. So let's start here. Maybe, maybe it's just me. Or maybe uh, you or a couple of the other folks out there might be a little bit like me. Whereas some people get the blues, they get depressed. Uh, I, I tend to uh, get into existential tailspins. That's, that's my low. That's, that's where I tend to sail south on. This last week, I got into a bit of one of those. So last week, I find out a really good old friend of mine in the business is going to be passing through town. He's on his way to Asia, and uh, actually, not too far from now, you'll get to meet him too. But for the sake of this story, I'm not going to tell you who he is. But what I can tell you is, he's very successful at being an art dealer, and he's been doing it for a very long time. So anyway, he calls me up and he lets me know that he's got a big layover at SFO. And I don't live all that far away from San Francisco International Airport. So I say, hey, it's around the evening time, you're going to be hanging out there. How about the two of us uh, get together for a drink, maybe a little bit of dinner? So I headed out there, and we got comfortable and met up with him. It was great to see him. And as we sat down and had our mediocre dinner in the international airport with uh, some watered-down drinks, um, we, we got to talking. We got to talking about our lives in the business, how we got into it, uh, and eventually we started to talk about our philosophies on being art dealers. Now, before my friend got into the business, he, like a lot of us, he came from another type of high-end sales, luxury products. And he started to make an argument that the biggest mistake that art dealers make is that we think we're special. We think that what we are doing is unique, and it's very specific to the fact that we're selling art itself, and that that's a fallacy. 
that high-end sales of luxury products is the same regardless of its fancy watches or if it's jewelry or luxury cars or boats or whatever it is that the nature of that sale remains the same and that most art dealers do themselves a horrible injustice when they get lost in this that they think what they're doing is as unique as the art that they sell that they think it's about the fact that it is art that they're selling and in that process they get off the course that there is a very specific formula, that there's a very specific tactics or set of tactics that are involved when you're selling at that level, and that this is where their mistake lies. And he considered that his success is really due to understanding this. And no surprise here, I don't agree with him. But I can't deny him either. He's sold a ton of art in his life, and he's made a lot of money doing it, and he continues to do it. There's got to be something to this. He's pursued his career with that specific belief, and it has brought him a lot of success. So as much as I don't agree with it, I also can't deny that there is a truth to it as well. And that stressed me. It stressed me a lot. I mean, I'm like a lot of other people. I want to live in as black and white of a world as I can get to. It's more comfortable. It's a lot easier to say, this is what the business is about. This is what my craft has been about. This is what's at the heart of what I've been doing for the past, well, almost a few decades. And yet, still, I have to look at it and say, maybe I'm one of those people. Maybe I'm the person that he's described Maybe I'm lost in it a little bit, and I don't get it. This is where that existential tailspin starts. I literally, while sitting there in the airport under its bright lighting and and the echoing announcements and the people shuffling back and forth with their luggage, I, uh, I started to get a little bit dizzy. I felt a little bit lost. I started to feel sick to my stomach. Some of it might have been the airport food, but the fact is, I was really having to review something. I mean, really, something was happening here. My own self-perception, as someone who works with something that is delicate, that is refined, that is sophisticated, and that is a true, true developed craft, was, well, it was being challenged. What I thought was so precious, well, it seemed like it was being described as if I was painting the side of a barn with a paint roller instead of being a photorealist working with refined brushes, or I was at best a person offering first aid versus being a neurosurgeon working with the finest of micro-instruments. I was in a Willie Loman stupor. And long after that mediocre airport meal... I continued to chew on this for days and days. And at first I thought, you know, screw that. We're storytellers. I'm a storyteller. I'm not talking about horsepower and a, and a lotus car. I'm not talking about the three C's and a diamond ring at some jewelry counter. I'm, I'm crafting worlds, worlds of perception where paintings become living things. But that's not to say we're the only storytellers out there. I mean, I would imagine the 
The best jewelry salespeople are storytellers. The best car salespeople are storytellers. We're not special in that way, perhaps. Lots of us are good, and lots of us do that. Hmm. No. No, 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 no. We're more than storytellers. We're alchemists. We work within a world where all other things are measured by the complexity of their manufacturing, the technology behind them, the cost of the materials that go in. And a piece of artwork, that doesn't even equate. It's a few dollars worth of paint, it's a few dollars worth of canvas, and it's the time of some art school graduate. Forgive me, artist, but roll with it. I'm talking out to the art dealers here on this one, but join in. Hang on. No, we tell a story. A story so full it creates its own universe. A universe so real people find themselves living in it as it is told. A universe where this painting is the most important thing they'll ever see. And a universe where owning this painting will make them the most fulfilled being that ever lived within it. We do that. We do that every day and we make it out of whole cloth. Hell, we don't make it out of whole cloth. We pull it from the air. We do that not like alchemists. No, I was wrong on that. We're damn magicians. That's what we are. We do something that is amazing and we do something that no one else does on the planet. We bring to life the visions of other great and talented people and we marry it. We marry it to the souls of other human beings on the planet. And not only in that precious little moment do we make that the most exciting thing they can possibly think of doing, but we make it so real, so vivid, that they take that home and they'll experience it that way for the rest of their lives. They'll experience it so intensely they will tell the stories that you told over and over again to their friends. They will experience it so deeply that they'll need another hit from it like a drug and they'll come back to you for more, slapping their arms for that experience one more time. That's right, we're magicians and what we do is powerful and what we do is special and what we do is unique. And God damn it, I love you, my friend, who I met in the airport and I hope to be speaking to you soon here on the microphone. But I have to say, we got a, we got a little tangle coming up because I believe in something different. And I'm going to stand by it. And maybe that's what this podcast is about. It's not about art dealers. It's about people that conjure magic out of the air. Hector, get me something from the top shelf. Swish it around because I deserve a drink. Hey, do you know that Michael Fianco just became the new director of Chuck Jones Gallery in San Diego? No? You know how I know? I read it in Art World News, that's how. Knowing what's going on in our market is very important to me. It's how I keep on top of the game. Survivors seek shelter in a storm. Those who prosper read the weather report. Read Art World News and be that guy. Know what's going on. Art World News has been doing this for 20 years and they keep on top of the game in our business for us. It's where I get my information, and it's where I hope you go and get it for yourself as well. We'll marry the recent art school graduate, correspondence at that, due for your pricey retail gallery walls. Will Ricky, the clerk over at Home Depot, do as an art dealer in your space? How about Nancy? 
Nancy, she sells used cars down the street. Would she be a good gallery director for you? No, of course not. That makes no sense. So why? Oh, oh, why? Why is it that most of us in the gallery business wing it when it comes to promoting our shows and our artists and our events and whatever else it is that we want to get attention for? Why do we insist on just leaving it the chance to get the PR that we want and desire so much? No, that's not what you do. You call Relevant Communications. They're found at relevantcommunications.net. And them, with their owner, Allison Zucker-Perlman, and her team of crack PR specialists, they are going to help you out in ways that I can't even explain here on the microphone. Take a card out of Danny's Rolodex and do yourself a favor and give those folks a ring. Today on the podcast, like I promised, we have my friend, gallery owner, Mimi Sperber, owner of Off the Wall Gallery in Houston, Texas. And if you don't know the Houston, Texas area well, I can tell you this, their gallery, it's on the top of the market down there. Everybody in Houston who knows any gallery knows Mimi's gallery. It's a fantastic space that she's been running for a very long time. And I've had the pleasure over the past decade or so, watch it grow and grow, and it still continues to do so. She has never lost a drop of passion for the industry, and you're going to hear it in our conversation. Our conversation, by the way, if you want to send some congratulations her way, took place not in Houston, Texas, but in her hotel room in Santa Barbara, California. She was down there organizing the wedding or helping in the organizing of a wedding for one of her sons. I think by now he is probably off and married, so a big congratulations to him, too, from us here at The Art Dealer Show. But for us, we're about to dive into what is an energetic and really interesting interview. I love it because we started to tackle some of the big stuff. We started to get to what is our relationship with collectors, why do they buy what they buy, and who we are in that process. So with that, I'd like to bring you to that hotel room in Santa Barbara, California, and a wonderful conversation with gallery owner Mimi Sperber. And Malcolm Lipke has been one of my favorite artists forever. I've sold some of his pieces in the gallery. I love it. I've bought three pieces. Here's a great story. Gary yeah. and I were married, uh, we're married 40, 42 years already, and he decided that you know, he had a great anniversary present for me. He got a signed Laker ball. Uh -huh. um, the whole team, Byron Scott, Kareem, everything. And he's like, Mimi, I have this great gift for you. It's like, really? Okay. And are you a Laker fan? I, I, oh, I love the Lakers, uh -huh. but not to that point. Okay. So years later, my friend Steve Diamond calls me, and he has this Lipke that a woman is selling because she's not well and she needs money. And I did it on layaway. I mean, there's a lot of money. And I get this little Polaroid, and I said, Gary, got a great gift for you. He said, look at the Lipke I'm giving you. And he's like, seriously? And I said, yeah, and when we get divorced, you get the Laker ball, and I get the baby. <laughs> that's, that's, that's our marriage. Uh -huh. That's the art business. That's life. But that's it. I mean, if you love art, yeah. if you love an artist, if you love basketball, you find a way to share it. You find a way to bring it home. It's easy for me to sell the artists I love because I have, it's not a dollar interest. It's an emotional attachment. Now, 
That's not always the case. There are artists I handle that I don't have an emotional attachment to, that I've left, you know, that I may have sold 30 years ago that I sell today because, you know, you have a, a business relationship and you have collectors and you don't want to disappoint them. The best part of business for me is bringing someone to either a Picasso ceramic and then getting them 10 more because they want to collect the, the best mm -hmm. or an artist who, you know, a client buys one painting and then another. And, you know, after a while they have a beautiful collection that they're viscerally attached to, that they love the work. It's not just a decoration. Yeah, but you're... You're jumping over, in my opinion, a huge science and art in the middle. It's like, that's, that's almost kind of the illusion, right? Not that it's a lie. I'm not saying it's a lie, no, it's but a lie. it's the effect that we, we give to the client, which is you're having a versatile relationship to it. It's an emotional relationship. You reacted, and I'm helping you bring this into your life. Now, the I'm helping you part... We're helping that's, ourselves. That, well, we're helping ourselves. That's true, too. Selves. But also, but that's, that's a discipline. I mean, that takes years and years and years and years to be really good at. I used to always use the line with my own art dealers when I ran galleries, which is, no one woke up in the morning saying, I'm going to buy a such and such. It's just not how it works. That's, there's an actual activity that's taking place here. There are a couple of things after 38 years in this business that I can tell you. A yeah. lot of people think education, knowledge of art, all those things are paramount to your being able to sell art. I think that most people want to buy art from someone that they like, that they can relate to. That's not judging them. Mm -hmm. Clients don't want to be judged. A client who buys Dr. Seuss or Tom Everhart is just as important as a client that you can sell a Dolly original or a Picasso to. Because ultimately, you want a client that's well diversified too. You know, I don't believe, and I hope other people don't believe, that you have to have the same level of art throughout your collection. You know, that you can't have a piece that makes you laugh or a piece that makes you cry. I don't think you go into a home and you see Picasso or Lucian Freud or um, Sawyer or someone throughout the whole house and you, you got to have a Wegman or you got to have something that just brings a smile to yourself. I think art should be about who you are, mm -hmm. all phases of you. I mean, in the world of art, your client can actually have seven faces like Sybil. It doesn't have to be, I want to be serious all the time and I want the best art and the most serious art because I would think that that becomes... A weight on your shoulder, don't you? You know, don't you want to laugh at you know? It does, but how much do you feel comfortable? How comfortable do you feel steering that collector towards that thought process? I think it's my job. I think an art dealer, to a large degree, is a psychologist or a friend. You know, the biggest thing I've learned in all my years yeah. in this business is, and this is this is a business thing, and I've been fooled by it. I fall. For it myself. You are your client's friend. Sometimes a client can become your friend, but mm -hmm. those rules, th those are relationships that don't have first rules. I mean, 
If you think sometimes that your client is your friend, a good friend, and that client goes somewhere else to buy or whatever and exerts their free will, right? you can find yourself feeling very hurt because you think, why would they do that to me? I'm a friend. Well, I think there's a lot to the friend thing too, which is, I mean, break down what a friend is, right? A friend isn't just somebody who serves you know, a person or placates a person or delivers exactly what it is that necessarily that they're asking for. Mm -hmm. That friendship also comes with sometimes telling people that what they're doing is off base, that what they're doing is not going to be in their own benefit after a while. I mean, that's the real role of a friend. And, yes, but and, I, and I'm very careful of that role. Yeah. I mean, I don't believe that I'm going to sell every piece of art to every single one of my clients because I don't have that ability. While mm -hmm. I would like to think I do and that it's not I don't I don't own them and sometimes the best thing you can do is say to someone that's a great deal you love it I mean, take Chihuly I would love to be able to sell Chihuly's glass but there's no room for me in that program am I going to deny my clients the ability to buy a piece of glass yes I'm going to tell them that I wouldn't necessarily buy a painting or a limited edition because I don't see the value in it. Mm -hmm. But Chihuly's glass, my God, you know, how do you tell a client, don't buy it because I can't get it for you? But how do you draw the line too and be fair when the client tells you, yeah, it's one thing when they say, look, we were on vacation in Seattle and we went to, you know, one of the main Chihuly galleries and we fell in love with the piece and, you know, you, you can't make an argument against it. He's one no. of the most incredible artists of our time, right? On the other hand, we were just on a cruise, and there's an artist by the name of, all right, I'm not going to hurt anybody's feelings, but let's just say generic 1980s artist that you know everybody's trying to dump out there. And you, you know, do you equally say, I need to save you from that? No, sometimes you can't save everybody. Sometimes you need to say, buy a piece and see if you want another one in six months. Mm -hmm. Because it could be a passing phase. But if you discourage them, because you're afraid that they're going to cross over to the dark side and leave you behind, that's going to happen inevitably anyway. You have, to be, you have to be fair. You can mentor, but you can't own. Mm -hmm. I think my experience has been with collectors too, that no matter what, you have them for a period of time. That people also kind of go through phases. and People who have a collecting personality... It's an Versus a decorating it's, personality. It's not a collection. Mm -hmm. Bear in mind, it's an addiction. It's like anything else. You go into someone's shoe closet and they have 400 pairs of shoes and they're only seven days a week. Or you go into a purse, you know, someone's house and they have purses or tchotchkes or whatever. Nobody needs a room full of owls. They have it because they're sating themselves. Same thing with art. Yeah, okay, we'll call it an addiction, but even addiction shift too. You know, I've Absolutely. had so many collectors where they'll just go on a jig that seems to have no end with a certain artist, and then bang, more now power, it's, more it's vintage motorcycles, or it's, you it, know. It's, it's happened. I mean, we have clients uh -huh. who have gone through all of those things, and also you have to understand that there's only so much art that can go into a home, even if it's 10,000 feet, Okay then maybe they'll build a house for 40,000 feet or they'll buy another house. But they're going to go away for years. But if you have a good relationship, they're going to show up at the holidays 
They're going to come say hello to you. You're going to still send them a box of chocolates and they're going to know you exist if you've done your job well. I actually had a collector in your city, Houston, whose art collection got so big, he built himself his own museum on his own property. Do I know him? Uh, Should I know him? <laughs> <laughs> He's the president of what was a very large Japanese company. It's amazing. You know, you can go into offices and they'll do $20,000 worth of posters or they'll do a quarter of a million dollars worth of art. There's no rhyme or reason. It's how, you know, the market is affecting them. Not only their market, the stock market, the stock prices. You know, we in Houston, Houston is an oil and gas town. And I mean, we built this new gallery in 2007. We moved in in 2008. And even though the market crashed, I mean, Hurricane Ike hit on a Friday night, Saturday morning. Houston shut down on Monday, Lehman Brothers. What year is that, by the way? 2008. Okay. September. We, the tw I think September 12th was um, Hurricane Ike, and you can look it up. And then I never even made that connection. Tuesday, I mean, most of us were so caught up in what happened Tuesday, before. no, yeah. it happened after. Two days after Ike, Lehman Brothers. Right. Okay. The boutique hadn't opened in the mall. We were three months away from opening it. We were open for three weeks. We had a Peter Mac show to open the gallery. The walls, the front, the floors, we were closed for two and a half months after that. Homes, down Richmond, elevator shafts were high-rise buildings. I mean, there was a tornado that went through one whole stretch. We had some damage to our house. I had no idea that when I turned around a week and a half later, Exxon was $59, you know? Oil stocks, all American stock, everything was phenomenally down. And the reason I bring this up is because you're blindsided. We're recovering from Ike. We never even saw Lehman Brothers. And then the next thing you know, you know, the General Motors and everybody's going out of business. And Obama is talking about, a, you know, a national disaster. McCain is saying it's all politics. It's never going to happen. Mm -hmm. There's a presidential election coming. And Houston was reeling, you know, it was like right after Rita and right after Katrina. This was all within an eight-week period. Right. But the least of it is that your gallery was in shambles. I mean... The least of it was my gallery right. in shambles. Right. Most mean, of it is gallery... no one's going to take your phone call for God knows how long. I mean, who wants to talk about buying a piece of artwork in the midst of the... People aren't buying artwork as much this year because they're afraid of what's coming next after this election. But my point is, so we opened up, you know... I don't know if you know Patty Kramer, but Patty Kramer worked for Chase at the time, and she came down to help me. And we needed new floors. And the one thing I knew is that I better get those floors ordered before everyone else in Houston figured out that they needed floors because I might not have floors for nine months. Right. So, you know, you work your way through it. In a crisis, your friends show themselves. It was amazing. I had a client who was in College Station speaking at a convocation, and their house was underwater in Galveston. And he called me and he said, I can't get home. I have art on the floors. I have art, you know. He said, you know what you've sold me. Can you get it out for me? And I sent a truck down with some guys who worked for me, and they got everything out of the house that they could get, and we sorted through what could be restored and what could be fixed and what was a total loss. 
And I mean, that's what people do for themselves and for each other in a crisis. And Houston was amazing through that. In our business, 08, 09, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, each year was a good year, a better year than the year before. While the rest of the country was struggling. Well, what do you think the difference was? I mean, I just imagine, look, I wasn't working in the retail side of our business at that point in my career. I'd already moved on to this end, but got to you know, see it directly through my clients. And for most people, especially in 08, 09, or really it's the end of 08, not a lot of calls were being answered. You know, we, we opened a brand new space. There was, with me, there was this, you've got debt now that you didn't have years before. It was, gallery cost 700000 whatever it cost to build out. You know, there was a monthly nut and you had to make it. And so you switched gears and you went to corporate and you did stuff like that. And um, we were very lucky. We met some great new clients in the new space next to Neiman and Chanel. Mm-hmm. We had really good art. We were expand- but did you re- other than calling corporate, did you reposition yourself? Did yeah, you change I re- your price points? Did you change your artists we- at all? Yeah, it was the one. Henry was like, and it's very interesting. Your gallery director, Henry. Yeah. He said, we have to go higher because the middle class is... The low end, the posters, they're not going to pay the bills. You need to go high end. You, you needed, we needed to focus on that 3%, which is a hard thing to do because I'm not one who wants to position myself like that. If I could, I would be the Whole Foods or the central market of the art business. I would have something for everybody because I enjoy talking to them and meeting them and, and wanting to help them. And I still will do it. Someone will call me and say, I got this Tarquay and it faded. Can you get me another? Uh-huh. I don't know how to say no. You know, sure. What do, it's goodwill. You know, there's no reason to not help someone. But at the same time, we knew that we had gone from posters to limited editions the limited edition programs, the Pruszynski programs, the Fairchild programs, they were all going away because your clays were taking over the art market. And that was something that we really didn't want to be a part of. Let's say all things were equal. Okay. Let's say people are buying in the middle market just as much as they used to buy in the 80s. And people are buying in the high end at whatever time period, you know, you want to pick as the ideal for that. I would say it's right now, actually. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and all the other little gradations in between, you know, in between the uh, street-level Martin Lawrence-type old galleries to the most sophisticated upstairs or white cubes and stuff. If you had your druthers, where would you point yourself? Like, if you only could pick one, if you couldn't make it, a, I'm hitting all markets. Well, take Everhart, okay? okay. Um, it takes me four limited editions to get to $11,000 versus one original. Right. And that isn't going to change. No matter what the market is or the economy, that's always been a reality. I'm happy where I am. I like going towards the high end. I've done some seven-figure sales. But what was the point you were trying to make about Everhart as an example? I I just think that Everhart is a perfect example of a great program because you can have one person who buys one print or four prints, or they can ultimately buy an original, but there's a jumping-off point. You know, someone who buys four, four or six Eberhards for their family room or their media room 
and they spend fifteen or eighteen thousand dollars, they can easily come back and buy a painting as well. I agree, and I think a lot of it upstairs doesn't usually go the other way. And I think a lot of upstairs dealers miss out on a huge segment of the market. They think all they're doing is they're filtering to make sure that people walk in the door are the only people who are financially capable of buying these big paintings. But the truth is, they're losing a large percentage of those people. Because as you know, like I do, working elements of the middle to upper, that there are so many people out there who are capable of buying at any level they want to, but they're going to dip their toes in the water. A lot of times it's just fun. You know, Look, I like the picture, so I bought the print for $1,800, and suddenly that becomes an inch that, you know, a year later, they're scratching it at a half a million dollars. I mean, we, Mackenzie Thorpe, we sold limited edition prints and sculptures. Then we sold bronzes. Now we sell paintings. I talked to Mackenzie a bunch about paintings that were his quieter or darker side or the more cerebral side. And he said, Americans won't buy that work. And I said... Based on what? I, based on American gallery owners not picking it. I said, uh -huh. there was a piece he did that was called Silence Something. And he had been to Hiroshima or Nagasaki or Auschwitz, and he picked up earth from the ground, earth that had been scorched, and put it in his uh, handkerchief or put it in a container and took it home with him until he figured out a way to mix pigment in it and make it part of his painting because the silence was screaming in his head. When you explain that story to someone in a way, it's not selling the story. It's talking about selling the artist's vision. Mm -hmm. I think you bring people around. It's not just about... Or selling them that the artist has that capacity. Yeah, and not on an investment level but has that soul. Not everything is about a pretty picture. You know, when you look at the olive trees that Van Gogh painted outside the sanitarium, that expressionism, you know, whether he was schizophrenic or bipolar or the medication he was taking was making him hallucinate and those olive trees were larger than life that he painted. When you break it down for a client, they want to be part of that. It's not just about the structure and the, and the pointillism or the post-expressionism or whatever. It's really about the feeling that that art gives you. But you're also challenged by, with any collector, no matter how intelligent they are or how sophisticated they are as far as education goes and such, usually you're faced with somebody who is not familiar with that dialogue. That is a new thing. You know, they like art, they like pretty things. I mean, I don't mean to be condescending in simple terms like that, but it comes in at that base level a lot of the time, regardless of what walk of life they're into. And at some point, you've got to bring them to that much more sophisticated way of seeing something. I think that most people have that capacity. Sometimes I'm not talking about capacity, I'm just talking about comfort. Sometimes you have to tap, tap into it. Uh -huh. You have to, you know, make... The, some people don't want to come along for the ride. Some people don't care. They just want a pretty sailboat. Right. On the other hand, there's some people who want to know what the artist was painting in that sailboat that excites them, and they want to feel it or see it or, or express it. You know, mm -hmm. they just... 
They're looking for something that they themselves don't know what they're looking at. I mean, how many people have you ever sold art to and it was just a pretty picture? I, I do believe there are people who I've sold to many that have bought it just because it's pretty. But usually there has to be some other component that answers the value aspect of it, even if it's just value. So it's either th it's done by this artist and this is their standing in the world, or this is what this artist is doing and this is what's unique about their career that gives them some validity in the position that they take. You know, they do this for a living, they were friends with this person, they fought in this war, whatever it is, something that gives some backbone to ultimately just supporting the fact that they're having some relationship to it. And I think pretty is a very misleading thing. I think pretty is usually just the answer that people who don't have a vocabulary to explain an emotional experience of something, even if it's just the emotional experience of design, that it just comes down to simple language. But it doesn't mean it's, not, it's uncomplicated. But it's interesting because I'm going to go random on you and go off the subject, okay. okay? Matisse got his start as what? Do you know? I don't know. As a boudoir painter. Well, that makes sense. He painted sense. women okay. yeah. in their bedrooms for their husbands or whatever. I don't know if it was two or $300. And those paintings are worth 20, 30, 50 million dollars. And Andy Warhol drew shoes and catalogs. Right. And they were illustrations. And the first Warhol I sold was um, Howdy Doody. And it was $1,500 in 1981. And I did a blog on this in 2008 because if you equated that piece, it was probably worth in the 60s, 70s. And if you took your stock, be it Apple or Boeing or whatever, it dived 30%. And the Warhol dived too, but the art came back fast. All your money's back. But it took longer for your money to come back than it did for your art to come back. And it's my belief, it's my fervent belief that anyone who owns art and can afford to own good art that they also love should have a portion of their financial portfolio, just like they have it in gold and real estate and stocks and bonds and cash. There should be a little percentage of it that is in art. Yeah, let me challenge you on that one a little okay, bit. Go ahead. Okay. Andy Warhol is a very exceptional thing. He entered into no, the he's blue. Not. Look at Basquiat. Look at look at Lichtenstein. They jumped they jumped over Dine, Hockney, Rauschenberg, Rosenquist. They jumped Hock, they just jumped over that period. Maybe because the baby boomers saw something and they didn't have to think about it. But you and I can list a dozen artists or so that came out of that period of time and, and that school of art, like Lichtenstein as an example. And we're going to quickly run out of names. Maybe we can do a dozen, two dozen names. There were a couple thousand people, though, selling at that time, you know, working in pop art. Chuck Close, Chris Wool. I mean, I understand, but those are the, you're naming all the winners. Well, there's a lot of there's losers always in there. But there's only a handful of winners through every generation. Mm -hmm. There's just, you know, that's the thing. You want to buy a pretty picture and you see it at the street market on State Street in Santa Barbara, buy it mm -hmm. because it'll make you happy. And yes, it, that person could be the next Rembrandt. On the other hand, 
if it's not and you enjoy it and you had it for 30 or 40 years, that's fine. But you also have to realize people bought Van Goghs and Picassos and stuff. They didn't know what they were buying. That's why every once in a while they pop up in a garage sale. It's a crapshoot. But there is a midpoint in it somewhere. And this is what I've always gotten into with my clients. Because, you know, there's that space between 1968 and 2016 when you talk about, it, you know, Andy Warhol's The Example. And somewhere in the middle, there's that time period like you were referencing it. You know, look, in the early 1990s, we had pieces like electric chair, you know, not in the Marilyn Monroe, not the soup cans, electric chair, okay, that you couldn't give away at $1,000. Well, that was because of the subject. Yeah, but what was being missed, and I have, there's a lot of lists like that, hamburger wrapper, and, you know, there's all, all kinds of Look pieces. at the, tr- look, I was, Leslie, um... Well, just hang on a second. I, okay, I'm sorry. Go in the direction. It's okay. All I'm saying is, it's a point in time, though, that they did miss something very important. And I think this is where the sweet spot of what you're talking about is, which is, this is an artist that's already established as having things that you attribute to him that will never, ever be taken away in all of history. He is the father of pop art, or, the guy, or whatever you want to call it, you know, the guy. And pop art can get out of fashion, people could be not interested in it, whatever it is, but he is never leaving the art history books. And that, when you hit that mark, I agree with you entirely, that everything is going to always go in that upward direction because... Look at Chuck Close. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the story. You know, there are pieces that are not that valuable, but there are pieces that are valuable because of the story behind it, mm-hmm. because of his work. Look at Phil, you know? I mean, look at Lichtenstein. He was a sign painter. Not everyone winds up at the Museum of Modern Art. There are some people who wind up in a museum in Missouri. There are artists who wind up in, in museums. They'll either buy their way in or give a piece away or whatever. But and also, not everything in MoMA is necessarily highly collectible. It's often, it's sometimes it's there to fulfill a, a, a story. A, a story. Yeah. Let's take the Vatican. Let's take the Pope. The greatest history of art, for art's sake, they have the most pieces. They can have anything and everything they want, correct? Mm-hmm. So when they pick an artist who they want to commission, whether that artist does it for free or not, a 21st century artist, and they put it in a cathedral or they put it somewhere, how many artists? Do you know that are picked by the Vatican? Does that make the piece more valuable? Is that the next Michelangelo? How do we determine that next generation of artists? Who is it? Gagosian who picks it? I mean, who picks? Is it Leslie Sachs? I mean, who who are the makers and the shakers of the next generation? Who was Monet's agent who took painting? You know, I swear you're hitting one of my favorite stories. Who who is go on with it? Who, who was I'll the, look it up and I'll aim splice it because it is one of my favorite stories. Who told him to do a lily pond, uh-huh. a lily pad, and made him a fabulous artist. I mean, he was, I'm not saying Monet is a decorative artist. I don't need people to call me and scream at me in the middle of the night. But how do you make that leap from this to being a world-class, world-known artist? Okay, 
we got to take a break for just a moment because we just uttered the name of somebody who is very, very important to all of us in the art business. Even though you may not know his name, without him, we might not have the profession in which we know now. His name was Paul Duran Ruel. Paul Duran Ruel was an art dealer in France in the 1800s. He came from a family of art dealers, although back then they kind of called themselves something more akin to picture salespeople. Paul Duran really was one of those people who was responsible for elevating the profession from just salespeople to actual art dealing as we know it today. So who is Paul Duran Ruel? Well, he's the guy who bought 5,000 Impressionist paintings in his lifetime. That's one thing. 1,000 of them Monet's, 1,500 of them Renoir's, and 800 of them Pizarro's, and the list goes on and on. So how did this begin? Well, in 1870, the Franco-Prussian War broke out, and it made Paris not such a nice place to live. So Paul took a clue, and he went off to London to kind of reset up his art-selling business. Once he got out there, a friend from back at home came and looked him up came into his gallery, got into a conversation, and gave him a tip. He said, Paul, there's something going on back at home, and you need to pay attention to it. There's a handful of artists, and they're trying a brand new technique, a new approach or style and what they do, and it's rather special. And if you want to be where we're going next, you probably should start taking a really good look at all of this. Now, with him was a friend, another artist. A certain man by the name of Claude Monet. And in that first encounter, Rouen Raël is said to have bought everything that that artist had available at the time. And there began one of the most important long stories in the history of art dealers. Now, if you've ever represented artists, you probably appreciate this next part. Right after he bought up all of uh, Monet's stuff, another artist by the name of uh, Pizarro shows up. He heard tale that someone was buying up this stuff that no one else was buying, and he got there as fast as he could to sell whatever he had. Eventually, the war dies down, and Duran Ruel goes back to Paris. And when he returns, he goes on a buying spree to Gaz, Pizarro's, Sicily's, buying up entire studios. At the time, that was an insane move. An art dealer may buy 10 works from an artist at most, and not returned to his studio until all ten had been sold. But Duran Rayal, he he was working on some sort of a vision. He wanted to possess this. He wanted to corner the market, whatever that market was going to be. And whereas that might sound very sophisticated and savvy, well, you got to keep this in mind, too. At the time, Impressionism it didn't sell. No one gave a damn about it. No one in Europe was buying any of these paintings. He was it. He was the only guy. And it's not like he got it to take off either. For the most part, it took him 10 to 20 years to sell most of these paintings that he was buying in the early years. In 1876, with three rooms filled with Impressionist paintings in his gallery in Paris, he put on what was the very first show of Impressionist art. And the critics came, and the critics tore it to pieces. Some of the criticisms went along the lines of... Someone needs to tell that Degas guy that flesh shouldn't look like it's rotting when it's on a living person, so you can get the idea of how well this went over. But he kept at it, put on a couple more shows, kept on trying to ring that bell and see if anybody would respond back at home, and unfortunately they didn't. As a matter of fact, over that time, just a footnote, 
He put on for a couple of his artists something that they were calling a one-man show. The fact is, Paul Duran Ruel might very well be the inventor of the one-man show. Up until that point, shows were usually group exhibitions of sorts. Going into the 1880s, Paul Duran Ruel, well, he starts to become broke. But yet somehow, during all that time, he did something else that was exceptional. The whole way through, Duran Ruel paid his artists stipends. He gave them loans, and he gave them advances on their own shows. But that's not to say that the times were okay. He continued to get in worse and worse shape. And with that, so did his artists, as he had less and less he can offer them. At one point, Claude Monet writes to him that he wants to tear up his canvases, and he wants to slash them with knives. And Duran Royal writes back in response to his good friend Claude. He says, we'll find you a market. Tells him to hang in there, that he will eventually find the people who will reward them. Now, Duran Durrell never had a contract with his artists. It was really just the honor amongst friends. He had their loyalty, and they had his. They stayed very tight and very close. I don't know if there's ever been a perfect parallel to this in the history of art since then. And with nothing more than the bond of their friendships, Paul Duran, with very little money at all to spare, if any, packs up 300 works, puts them in 43 crates, puts them on a boat, And in 1886, he puts on a tour of exhibitions throughout the United States. Cincinnati, Washington, Philadelphia. Over three months, he sells 419 works, $40,000 total in sales, which is a ton of money at the time. And he starts what would then on be the real movement of the Impressionist and the art collecting world. Having created a market in the United States, a year later he opens his own gallery in New York City, kept its doors open until 1950. Years later, at the end of Claude Monet's life, he was quoted in writing saying, We would have all died of hunger without Duran Rayel, all we Impressionists. Paul Duran Rayel himself died in 1922 at the age of 89. He would be quoted at the end of his life saying, At least the Impressionist masters triumphed. My madness had been wisdom. To think that if I had passed away at 60, I would have died in debt. I would have been bankrupt, surrounded by a wealth of underrated treasures. Gary's uncle just died a couple of years ago, and he... Came to, he was a survivor of the Holocaust. He was a Gary, child. your husband. Gary, my husband. His uncle was a fabulous painter, painter. And because he was able to paint, he, he probably survived the war painting walls and camps for the Nazis. Okay. But when he came to America and he was very, very young, he started to paint paintings and sketches. Laura Gold, which was Park South Gallery, was his agent in New York City. He did this incredible painting of John Kennedy, and Rose Kennedy wanted him to donate it to the Kennedy Library. He was still a struggling artist. He didn't have the capacity to make that leap of faith, which may have changed his total world. But he had patrons. He got, I mean, he lived in Manhattan. He was a man about town. My husband, Gary, used to think he reminded him of James Bond, you know, that 
debonair artist, you know, with, with the sport coat, with the, with the suede patches, you know, the way we see people in uh -huh. our lives. He was fabulous. And here's what happens to an artist. Laura Gold goes out of business. Nathan goes through a divorce. He's painting, but, and everything's selling. And then he decides, you know, the Smithsonian has his work. There's an auction in Arizona when the man who was his patron dies. And all these fabulous paintings that were tens of thousands of dollars or single thousands of dollars are now up for auction. And they're going for no money because no one really knows the story of him. And Gary bought the biggest painting in the collection, which was a 10 by 10 painting that was a self-portrait because he couldn't bear to, for it to go to someone strange who didn't know the story of it. I bought a picture of the rabbi from Minsk. You know, there are pieces that you want to save for posterity. I, I just think art is not just about the present, it's about the past and the future. Not every artist is going to be, you know, a Monet or a Nathan Wasserberger or whatever. But there are artists where their success is always based on their agents and their collectors. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, there are great artists that get lost just because they didn't have the care along the way. And a lot of times we can see it in slow motion taking place. I mean, do you see yourself in that place yourself? Yeah, I, you know, this is off the record. I, I don't think you'll put it in, but I had a fabulous young man who was incredibly talented. One of the most incredible realist painters. He was in his 20s. He just couldn't get his head out of his ass. And he couldn't either drink or drugs or whatever. And I still have his paintings, but yeah. he needs a forum to direct him. I don't want the phone calls at 2 o'clock in the morning. You know, there are artists who are... This guy could have been the next Christian. Yeah. But where is he with it? I mean, emotionally, is, it, is it the career I never had? Is it the thing I was denied? Or does he even understand that or, he or robbed it, himself? No, I think he'll probably think that someone robbed him because they didn't prop him up. Uh -huh. And that's part of life. And there's no guarantees. It's, I mean, Hollywood is like that. You could be fantastically like talented. You can do everything right. You could have good representation. You know, it doesn't mean necessarily that it's going to click. No, and sometimes you can be your own worst enemy. Sometimes you can believe the hype too much. Sometimes you don't believe it enough. Mm -hmm. But if you're really a straight shooter, as a dealer, as a patron, as an artist, if you're all on the same page, the person who sells the art, the person who buys the art, the person who paints the art, everyone can enjoy what they're doing because it's a win-win situation. It's only when the artist or the dealer or the client begins to drink the Kool-Aid, let's look at a great artist who didn't make it. Let's look at Erte. He was fabulously successful. And then his success went to nowhere. Uh -huh. And all of a sudden, if you look at Erte's prices today, well, his He's success went to nowhere because he was fabulously successful, too much so, but now, I would argue. But now the work is coming back. Mm -hmm. 
it's at auction. The prices are going up. He was a good artist. Mm-hmm. I, uh, there's a lot of artwork. He was also, though, an artist of the time. I mean, Deco, Deco became in fashion in the 1980s. It perfectly lined up with the management of his career. And that, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying if you're true to yourself, if you know who you are, if you know what you do, if you know why you're doing it, you know, ultimately I think what you get out of it is what you put into it, too. But do you see any of that as your responsibility as an art gallery? I mean, I represent artists, so I have to constantly be managing that with the artists we handle. You, you manage expectations. I manage expectations. Well, don't you do that? I also manage perspective, you know, not just what they expect, but how, how to see the world um, and my, in, in a constructive way. And mine is to manage my expectations of my clients. Right. It's you're exactly really the other the side same. of the coin. So, but it's the same. Right. Because if you're out of balance, your artist isn't going to produce. If I'm out of balance, my clients are not necessarily going to buy. And they don't all buy the same thing. That's perhaps the most uh, um, insightful part of this entire conversation to the point. I mean, have you ever had that dialogue? I mean, I've talked to you know art dealers that you have your end of the street and I have my end of the street and all that. But really to understand that that is a necessary equilibrium it's the greatest, is really important. It's the greatest argument I have with my staff. Because Tell me more. they don't see my side of it. They have to accept my side of it. I'm the boss. But why can't an artist who's getting $500 for a painting just be as good as an artist who's getting $50,000 but hasn't been discovered yet? They mm-hmm. haven't raised the price point. Is it price that dictates the greatness of an artist? Is it subject matter? Is it quality? How about the fact that it's just about what you love? Go back to Monet and your story. Who dictated that they were $300 paintings? Who dictated that a Matisse got $300 for a painting, a, a boudoir painting, or that in 1946, Chagall's lithographs in the Marseille flea market were selling for $100 and $200? Mm-hmm. Those prints are 20000 today. Who, I would say who, back then it was just as much about comparables as it is now. We just are bold enough to say we're comparable. And I would tell you that if, what, what was the first car you ever bought? It was a Toyota Corolla. It was about seven years old used. No, tell me what it would have been new when you bought it. Um, and a car new like that would have been about $10,000. And how much would that car be today? Would be worthless today. <laughs> no, a new car, a new Toyota. Oh, that's you know, a brand new Toyota Corolla is probably, I'm guessing, about twenty four thousand dollars somewhere in there. Okay, yeah. so inflation, right? The cost of doing business. My first car was a Peugeot that I had air conditioning in in nineteen seventy four. It was about thirty six hundred dollars. Today. If you could get a Peugeot in America, <laughs> it might be $50,000. $50, yes. Okay. Is it really worth 50000 or is it worth 3600 or is it worth something in between? Is a Chagall print worth $100 because that's what it was in 1946 versus $30,000 today? Part of what's happened is twofold. The art that was sold 50, 100, 300, 5,000 years ago, no one ever knew it would be valuable. It wasn't hinged properly, it wasn't protected, it was thrown in the garage, it was, tw- it was thrown away. It costs more 
today to live than it cost then. We have values on art. We know what, it, what it's now a material, a luxury, it's a commodity. We now account for those things, whereas our forefathers never did. An autograph by Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Jefferson was worthless in their lifetime. But what's it worth today? Because they're collectors for it. Uh, what I'm saying to you is it goes down to this. And this is, has nothing to do with us and everything to do with us. We are in a business where it's buy and sell. It's a buyer's market. It's a seller's market. It's kind of like real estate. We're just the people who put it together. Did you love the energy of that? Did you get anything out of that? Man, I love that conversation. There was so much there, and we had a fantastic time. Now, here's what went on. Like some of my other episodes, you might have noticed we ended a little bit abruptly. And what had happened was we started to go about as long as we could for that one meeting. Mimi had to run off and go deal with the wedding. And we had agreed that later on down the line, we would meet in San Francisco, the next city that she was going to go to. Unfortunately, that didn't take place. Part of the reason is, when I got back, I realized that we had so much in the first recording that if the two of us sat down, we probably would have gone for another hour and a half, and that would have been fine. We would have done what we've done with a few other of our guests, and we would have turned it into a second episode. But I thought, you know, let's give this some space. I want to chew on it. Maybe even get a little bit of feedback from you folks. Maybe you had some thoughts on it that might instruct us a little bit in the next conversation. And perhaps I can even have that in her hometown of Houston. Simply because we didn't get to have a, a final sign-off, I, I want to take the opportunity to thank Mimi. I did then, but I didn't get it on the recording. And I want it to be noted that I truly appreciated the time and the investment she put into it. But we'll be talking to Mimi soon. So are you loving this podcast? Are you liking what we have going on? Then I'm going to ask you for a little something. Now relax. We're not passing the hat. I mean, this is an NPR. But I am going to ask you for something here. First, go to our iTunes page and write a review. It helps. It helps a lot. And how do you get to that iTunes page? Well, I can give you the long address, but it's simple. Just write The Art Dealer's Show and then write iTunes into your Google search, and it'll go right to that page. And when you get there, there'll be a tab for reviews. Click on that. It'll take you to where you can offer one of your own. Two, pass along the word. Give this a shout-out on your Facebook page, Twitter, or whatever the cool kids are using these days. And three, make sure you subscribe to the show. You could be listening to this on your mobile device if you're not already. You can be listening to it on the go. And the best part about subscribing on one of the many podcatchers out there, like Overcast or Downcast or the iTunes uh, podcast application or Google Play has a very good one out now that just came out. The great part about being a subscriber is that you don't have to wait until you get an email or think of looking to see if we have a new episode. It just magically appears right there in your mobile device there for you when you're willing and ready to be listening to it. And if you don't know how to put it on, give me a call. I'll help you myself. And if you do all of these, give us a review on iTunes, give us a shout out, subscribe and put it on your mobile device. I promise you the podcast Karma Gods 
will send an elephant right into your gallery. Last thing, let's give some love to our sponsors, Art World News and Relevant Communications, two fantastic companies offering fantastic services. We didn't just stumble upon them. These are folks that we believe in. So, until next time, my art-dealing brothers and sisters, may the coconuts drop at your feet every day. This has been The Art Dealer Show. You can find us at artdealer.show, facebook.com slash artdealershow, tweeting at handleartdealershow, instagramming at artdealershow, and right here at the old Art Dealer Lounge.